Amen. If you have uh, elementary age kiddos, we'd love for them to be part of our Vine Kids time. Uh, they can follow the youngsters right out the door and Miss Angela, uh, not and Miss Angela, the youngsters, Miss Angela, right out the door. Um, well, welcome. Looks like a few more trickled in, made your way here. We are glad that you're here on um, a Marathon Sunday. We knew it would be a challenge, but we're glad that you made the effort. We know it was a bit of, a, of an issue getting here. We kind of knew that going in. We thought maybe it would clear out a little bit more than it did, but here we are. So uh, we made it. We're all good. Um, you know, we've been in this journey, the book of Hebrews, now for 28 weeks. We've been looking in and out of every deep little crevice and theological corner in the book. It's how we like to teach. It's how we like to explore text. We want you to have this love affair with Scripture. And so we have made it to this sort of final turn. And about a month ago, I told you that we made this turn from the theological and the theoretical to the practical, that our author is now taking us from the the whys and the why nots to the hows, to the, to the how do we begin to live these things out. And the entire book of Hebrews is really driven by the, the why questions that push us towards the how we live questions. So it takes a turn from what's just sort of in the mind about why God is who he is and why he's doing what he's doing to how you and I begin to live these truths out. And he's pleading with these Hebrew listeners to not only follow the Lord in their mind, but begin to follow it with their lives. And he's challenging them to live into this relationship with Jesus. This relationship with Jesus, which has created this new covenant, which is better in every possible way than the old covenant way of life. That Jesus himself is the fulfillment of, of that covenant and not to return to a so it's socially or culturally acceptable or return to an old covenant way of life like your parents or your families want, but instead to truly trust and follow Jesus because not only does it make sense in our head theologically, but it makes sense in our hearts and with our lives and we are called to a life of action that trusts in Jesus. And we made that turn and we stepped right into this idea of faith. And all of chapter 11 is really geared towards understanding faith in action. What does it mean to be someone that actually follows the Lord, trusts him, and goes where he leads? Because that was what it was going to take for these Hebrew Christians to truly put their feet into a path that trusted and followed Jesus. It was going to take monumental faith like those that had come before them. <clears throat> And so chapter 11 is this incredible picture of some of the most amazing men and women in, uh, in Scripture, some of the most amazing, miraculous stories about how these people have trusted the Lord, even in the face of difficulty, even in the face of what they may not know, they put their hope and trust in the Lord, and God never fails. And so over the past four weeks, that's what we've looked at. We've looked at these different lives, Abraham, Moses, Enoch, uh, Noah, all these people that have trusted the Lord in the middle of circumstances they couldn't understand, couldn't predict, and didn't know the outcome of. And God always prevails. And so this morning we're wrapping all that up by really exploring a last few key pieces of this idea of life by faith. And we're going to see five different really important sort of pictures of what faith does and where it pushes us to. Um, as he kind of caps off this section of faith and begins to lead us home as he closes out his sermon or closes out this letter. But we're going to look at five more pieces of faith in action and why they are vital to us as followers of Christ. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Hebrews chapter 11. <coughs> Excuse me, Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to look at what is my <clears throat> really one of my favorite parts of this entire book, which is the connection of these important things 
to the reality of what it means for you and I as followers of Christ. And keep in mind, if you think back to Hebrews eleven six, we were there about four weeks ago, where we, we look at this one verse where it says, without faith it is impossible to please God, because God, to, to, um, to, to pursue God, you've got to acknowledge that he's real and acknowledge that he, re- he rewards. So the idea is simply this, without faith we can't please God, we have to believe that he's real and believe that God wants to bless you. And really what we're going to see at the end of chapter 11 is sort of this full exposition of what that means. That God is a God who calls us to trust him and that when we trust him, we please him and that God wants to reveal himself to us and he wants to bless your life. And that's the picture we're going to see. And we're going to see why faith is so vitally important in some of the most difficult and wonderful places in our life. So let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we will dive into chapter 11 and unpack it together. Lord, I do thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that it is fully alive, uh, that it is your very breath, that it is everything that we are called to hold on to, everything that we need in our Christian life is wrapped up in its pages, in your word, in your breath, in your instruction, in your love letter to us. Lord, this is not a guidebook. It is not an instruction manual. It is your life poured out on pages so that we might know you. And God, we know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you, and so we don't take it lightly. This holds all authority in our lives of matters of faith and practice and trust, and so God, we just ask you to teach us through your word this morning. Take a moment in your own heart, just as you sit here. Let kind of whatever was going on this morning, whether you had a hard time getting here or you kind of came in kind of late or you got to be gone here in a few minutes, whatever, just let those things go for a minute. And just let the presence of God just sort of spill over you and ask the Lord to teach your heart. Just for the next few moments, just ask the Lord to teach your heart, to share something with you that you need to hear this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone in front of you or behind you. Pray for the people around you. If it's an individual, if it's your husband or your wife or a friend or a family member or somebody, just take a moment and pray for them. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. Each week I say that everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you, it's not about me. It's about us being the church, being the hands and feet of God, about being used by him. So just pray that God would move in the life of somebody else. Lord, we are grateful that your word gives us a picture of your love, gives us a picture of your provision, gives us a picture of your promises. And so, Lord, we rest our entire life upon its truth. And so this morning, Lord, I pray that you would teach us and that you would instruct our hearts. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So we're going to wrap up Hebrews chapter 11, this idea of faith, and then we're going to move on to another practical piece of this beautiful puzzle next week. But let's, let's take a look. Now, I don't want you to forget any of the other things that we've talked about and explored in chapter 11. I don't, have a, I don't want to go through all the sort of recap of all that, but if you get a chance to go back through those, all these pieces are building blocks to get us to where we are um, this morning. But this is where we are. Chapter 11, let's look at 29 through the end of the chapter. Let's say 29. Perfect. All right. <clears throat> By faith, 
the people passed through the Red Sea on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab became welcomed by the spies. She was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered the kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions and quenched the fury of flames, escaped from the edge of sword, whose weakness was turned into strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes in the ground, and they were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. So he starts off this section with a few proclamations that we're going to see about where faith leads us to and why it is vitally important and what faith does and where it moves us towards. And remember our audience, he is driving them in the direction of trusting God even in the middle of most difficult circumstances. Culture that was telling them to return to Judaism. That was telling them that Jesus was a lie. He's encouraging them to trust the God that has never failed and that faith is essential to these things. And the first thing he reminds them of is not of a person like we've been seeing. Abraham, Moses, Noah, Enoch. He doesn't remind them of a person. He reminds them of a couple of really important places and really important things that God has done that show his faithfulness, but more so show that God can do the impossible. And so the first thing we see unpacked here is that faith means believing that God can do the impossible. So which may seem like something we've sort of lined out over the past month because it, it sort of is. All of this points to believing that God can do what man cannot. And so the first thing he lays out is faith is important or faith means believing that God can do the impossible. And he gives two examples right off the bat. He says, when God parted the Red Sea and the Israelites walked across on dry land and when the walls of Jericho fell, God was moving. God was doing the impossible. Now, you remember these stories, right? These are incredibly important biblical history stories that sort of are in the move of God's redemptive history. The first one is probably the most well-known of those stories, right? We could probably retell it a little bit. But the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. They were under Pharaoh's hand. God raises Moses up to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh that God is telling him to release the, uh, the Israelites, they go through this whole battle back and forth. Pharaoh won't do it. God sends the plagues. The Passover happens. Finally, Pharaoh's heart is softened and he releases the Egyptians or the Israelites and they march forcefully. Some scholars say up to three million of them. The Israelites march out of Egypt. And they are free. They've been let go. But as they begin to do that, the Egyptians turn their hearts. They're like, what are we doing? We're letting all of our servants, our slaves go. This is silly. Let's go and get them back. So Pharaoh basically raises his army, gets all the chariots, and they go flying outside the city chasing 
the uh, Israelites that were now wandering towards where God was leading them. And the Israelites see the Egyptians coming. They turn their back and they can see this massive army coming. And this three million plus group of people now is cornered between the edge of the Red Sea, right? And this pounding Egyptian army that wants nothing to do but kill, kill them. Or at least capture them and bring them back. And so they begin to start grumbling. They look at Moses and they're like, thank you. So were there not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to just be buried in the desert? I mean, that's basically exactly what they said. Like, you just brought us here to be killed instead of killed back there? And, and Moses basically says, I believe that God is going to do what he's going to do. God is going to provide. And you remember the story. God goes to Moses and he says, Moses, why are you afraid? Stand here, raise that staff, and we're going to essentially part the sea. And the Israelites will go on dry ground. And that's exactly what happened. God moves. Moses strikes the water. As we see or remember maybe from um, you know, the prince of Egypt the, or even from Scripture. Believe it or not, it's in there too. They part the seas. <laughs> right? It's incredible. And the Israelites go right through on dry land. And as the Egyptian army follows, the sea comes crashing back together, wipes them all out. And the Israelites stand on the other side of the Red Sea free. And it becomes the hallmark moment of faith for a people group. They point back to it all the time. In fact, it was, do you remember when God did the impossible? And then we have another story where he says, do you remember when the walls of Jericho fell? And you remember this, you know, this is some 40 years later. The Israelites are wandering around the desert because they're stuck in unbelief. They've been a generation of unbelief. And God finally says that he's going to give them the promised land, which he has given them. And the key is they've got to cross the Jordan and they have to conquer the fortified city of Jericho. You may remember the story. Spies go into the city. Basically, they say it's, it can be taken, but it seems impossible. And so what's the great military plan? God tells them to march around the city once a day for seven days. And on the seventh day, they're going to march around the city seven times and blow the trumpet. And what happens is when they blow that trumpet, they're all going to scream like crazy people. And when they do, the walls are going to fall down. And that's exactly what happens. They go once a day, once a day, once a day for seven days. On the seventh day, they go seven times, blow the trumpet, scream like crazy people, and the walls come tumbling down and God gives them the entire city. And it's this moment, moment where we begin to trust God doing these incredible things, impossible things, things that no human could do. Now think about those scenarios for just a moment. Both of these things are, are so outside our understanding of what is possible, right? Splitting the Red Sea. It's impossible. There's no humanly way this could happen. This is a miraculous moment. The Israelites have been enslaved for 430 years in Egypt, only to have Moses tell them that God has released them. They begin to believe and they find themselves on the edge of a shore with an army of Egyptians that want to either re-encapture them, enslave them, or kill them, bearing down. And they are stuck between that and believing if God can do something that no man can do. You've got these walls of Jericho. Forty years later, this same generation, right, that had been wandering around the desert has given way to their sons and daughters. And their sons and daughters are beginning to believe and trust God. And so God says, I will give this generation the promised land. But when he does, he opens up the opportunity and it's straight into the, one of the most fortified cities in all of Canaan. With these giant walls. And you've got Israelites with the only weapons and tools they have. They've been dragging around the desert for 40 years. It's not like they had built this massive, incredible arsenal of tanks and things. They've been wandering in the desert. And God says, I will give you this city. And they go, okay, what's the great military plan here? 
What are we going to do? How are we going to get this city? What is God going to do? Tell us about the strategic moments we're going to have. And God says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to march around the city one time a day, and then you're going to take a nap. And you're going to do it again and again for seven. And on the seventh day, you're going to do it seven times. And then you're going to have your priest blow a trumpet, and then you're all just going to scream, right? And then the city's going to be yours. And they're like, whatever. And sure enough, right, God does these incredible things. And the walls come crashing down. The city's theirs. And in the, what that does is it opens up the entire promised land for God's people. These are monumental things, but they are reminders and important things because faith believes that God can do the impossible. And they became moments or footholds for generations of people, including yourself and me, to believe that God does things that are impossible to man. You know, God still does the miraculous. He still rescues. He still redeems. He still provides. He still saves. He still heals. Faith, true living faith in Christ believes that God still does the impossible. What that means is that if you don't see an out, does not mean that God will not work. And that's important because when I look at the things going on in my life, and when you look at the things going on in your life, oftentimes things seem impossible. I don't know how my marriage is going to get better after 20 years of struggle. I don't know how we're going to dig ourselves out of this financial hole. I don't know where to go from here. I don't know how to handle this diagnosis. I don't know what to do. Everything seems like it may be insurmountable or at times impossible or beyond my ability or I have tried and I have tried and I have tried and nothing seems to happen. Faith believes that God can and still will do the impossible. Now, it doesn't mean that God will always work in the ways that we want him to, but it believes that there is nothing that God is not capable of. And this is incredibly important. Because as followers of Christ, one of the great tenets of our belief is that God is bigger than I am. And God can do impossible things. So if it feels today like there's something in your life that is insurmountable, Part of what our author of Hebrews is saying is that real faith believes that it's not for God. That you don't have to be hopeless. Faith means believing that God can do the impossible. He goes on to kind of build on that. Faith also knows that God loves you, even at times when you feel unlovable or unworthy. Listen to our next part of the story. By faith, the prostitute Rahab because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Do you remember Rahab? Maybe not quite as well known as the walls of Jericho or the Red Sea, but important nonetheless for a lot of reasons. Verse 29 in Hebrews, along with Abraham and Moses and Noah and all these incredible people, is this woman named Rahab who is mentioned in this hall of fame of people who trusted the Lord. And he said, you remember Rahab the prostitute. She's only mentioned twice in the New Testament here and in James. And both times she's labeled as the prostitute. But in both times she's also spoken about with incredibly high regard. Because she believed and trusted in the Lord. The story of Rahab is just as fascinating. Before the walls of Jericho fell, God had told the Israelites he was going to give them the city. And he wanted to send spies over there to show them. So a group of Israelite spies cross the Jordan. They sneak into the city during the day and they hide in the house of Rahab the prostitute. 
And Rahab the prostitute has this encounter with these spies where she hides them. Because basically what she says to them is, we are petrified of your God. In fact, I believe that your God is the one true God. And he is going to destroy this entire city and all of these people. We've been watching from the onset, from the other side of the river, and we see that God has done. We have heard that he parted the Red Sea. She even says, we heard what had happened to a generation before you, that God is real, and that this city is his, and I believe that he is the God. And so the spies basically say, okay, help us get out of here, because now they're kind of stuck in the city and the Night's coming and the doors are closing and the walls are being shut up and the gates are closing. And she says, I'll help you, but when you come back and you take this city, because I know your God will win, because he is God, remember me and all my family. And they say, if you help us get out of here, we will. And they give her this scarlet piece of rope that she ties on her window. And basically what they say is, anybody inside this house, which was built on the side of the city wall, anybody in here with a scarlet rope, right, we're going to save Sounds a lot like Passover, right? Red streak of blood across the doorposts. Very same thing. God will spare and save because you have trusted and you believe in the one true God. So she puts them on the roof. They hide during the day. She brings them down and lowers them in a basket. They go out and hide in the woods. They eventually go back. God gives them the city. City walls of Jericho fall. Instructions were don't touch Rahab and her family. Sure enough, she has them all huddled in there. Saves them all. But Rahab is fascinating because Rahab has an incredibly important place in Scripture. You know, she becomes the mother of Boaz, right? Who marries Ruth, who is in the lineage of David, who is ultimately in the lineage of Christ. Meaning in Christ, our Savior's lineage is this prostitute Rahab. What it tells us is that there is nothing outside of God's grace. Now let's not pretend that Rahab didn't know who she was. I don't want to make too many assumptions because we don't know this in Scripture, but I'm guessing Rahab knew exactly who she was. She knew that as a Canaanite or a pagan prostitute, she would probably not fall into the religious graces of the Israelites just because of who she was. These were a very pious, very religious people that practiced an incredible amount of sacrifices to the one true God. And here is Rahab, a pagan prostitute. And as God does, when we experience his holiness, we often know exactly who we are. Meaning when you come face to face with the Lord, even in your prayers or in your life or in your worship, what's clear is our sin. God raises it to the top. It's why Peter, when he met Jesus and he sees Jesus do this miraculous thing with fish, he really recognizes in that moment that he's in the presence of God and he falls on his face and he says, I'm not worthy. It's why time and time again in Scripture, people come face to face with God and they fall on their face, or they recognize their own depravity. And I'm guessing Rahab knew exactly who she was. There are moments in our life where our hearts, our lives, our sin is exposed. It's out there. And if you're anything like me, there are moments in your life where you feel unlovable or you feel unworthy. I'm not saying that's what she felt all the time, but I'm guessing there are those moments where she's standing before a God who saved her, And she's looking at her life going, why me? And there have been moments in my life, a lot of them actually, where in my struggle with sin or my struggle with fear or pride or whatever it may be, I've looked at the Lord and I've said, I don't get why you love me. There have been moments I've looked at my wife and said that. 
I don't know why. I feel oftentimes like a failure. But faith knows that God loves us even when we don't feel lovable and even at times when we feel fully unworthy. Faith believes that God knows our hearts and is a God who keeps his promises. These are important things, right? Because if we are gauging our entire understanding of God off our emotions, we're in for a real roller coaster, nasty ride with life. But if we gauge it upon the things that we know to be true about who God is, which is God is a God who keeps his promises, he is faithful, he is trustworthy. When he says he loves, he loves. Nothing shakes that, nothing wavers that. When God tells us we are saved, we are claimed. When God tells us we are redeemed, we are redeemed. When God tells us we are loved, we are loved. Faith means knowing that God loves you even when your heart wants to give yourself away. So faith means believing. It means believing that God can do the impossible. Faith means knowing that God loves you even when the parts of your life may feel unlovable. Rahab is a great example of that truth. And then we continue down this journey, right? Listen where he goes to next. What more shall I say? He's basically spent all of chapter 11 giving you examples. What more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who made faith, conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, escaped the edge of sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle, routed foreign armies, and routed foreign armies. So basically what we're seeing here is something really simple. He's like, I'm running out of time here. For all this time, I've given you all these incredible examples, and I haven't begun to scratch the surface about, surface about Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, the prophets, all these incredible people. I could tell you story after story after story after story. I could tell you about the incredible things that their faith has done, shutting the mouths of lions, delivering entire kingdoms over, administering justice. And he goes to this entire incredible movement of things that God has done through the faith of people that trusted him. And what we learn in those moments, and I'm going to sew these things up a little quicker with time, but he says what we learn in those moments is that faith is essential, essential to anything and everything of spiritual significance. So what that, that picture tells us, all of those things that have happened, have happened because God has blessed the people who have trusted him. Notice what's not there. Great military conquests, the great leadership of people, all man-made qualities, all the things that people have done on their own merit, none of those things are there. What is there is that God has done the amazing through what seemingly is impossible. That God is totally at work and anything that happens for eternal significance is because God is moving. It is not the movement of people. All of those incredible conquests, the military conquests, the handing over of entire armies, justice, the overthrowing of kingdoms, all the prophecies that have unfolded, all of those things are because God is a God who is at work and responds to the faith of his people. The reality is, is that nothing will happen for eternal significance if the Lord doesn't move. You cannot cause it, you cannot will it, and you will not do it. God moves and God works in an eternal way. And faith is essential to that. 
Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith believes that God can do what no man can do. It's the culmination of God doing the impossible. This is a picture of that truth. You want some more examples of God doing the impossible, of God doing things that are eternal, of God doing things that last. Here they are. They've escaped flames, escaped the sword, shut the mouths of lions, and all kinds of incredible things, not because of who you are, but because of who God is. When incredible things happen in your life, one of the great promises and tenets of Scripture is to remember that the goodness, right, and the glory goes to the Lord. Everything in your life that happens that's good, Scripture points to the idea of give thanks to God. God is good. God moves. God does things that are eternal. God does things that last. It's not your movement that brings about eternal significance. It's the promise and the move of God. So give him glory. Return that glory. Faith knows. Faith, true faith knows that you couldn't have done it. The follower of Christ knows that apart from Christ, I am nothing. Literally, John tells us that. Apart from Christ, I can do nothing. That means that everything in your life that is of any good is because God is. And a life of faith acknowledges that. The reason my family holds together, the reason I even have anything that I have or am is because God is good. Because left up to my own devices, I destroy things. But God, he works in an eternal way. And he deserves the glory and he is good. Faith is essential, right, to anything and everything of eternal significance. Then look at the reverse of that in verse 34 or verse 35. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in half. They were put to death by the sword. They went out in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. This world was not worthy of them. They wandered the deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes in the ground. So the other side of this glory is also what life promises. Life promises suffering and struggle. I mean, look at that list of what believers in the Lord have had to endure. Long before you came on the scene. Torture, jeers, flogging, put in chains, prison, stoned. Somebody's been sawed in half. They were dressed in sheepskins and goatskins, meaning they didn't have clothes. They were tossed out of the city. They were called to literally live in caves and dwells and mountains, hiding because of the persecution. In this life... You will have suffering. In this life, you will struggle. It is not new to you. It was not new to your parents. It was not new to their parents. And it certainly wasn't new all the way back into these days. If you look at that list of what followers of the Lord have had to endure, and if you go into the New Testament followers of Christ have had to endure, it's staggering. Life is hard. Brandon tells me this all the time. No one gets out of it unscathed. Life's hard. And you will suffer in this life. That is true. It's not all you would do, but you will suffer. 
And sometimes you will suffer unjustly. You will do every single thing right that you're supposed to do, and you will still suffer at the hands of an unfair boss, of the gossip of people, of a family that turns their back on you, of a situation where somehow somebody else seems to get the reward for what you did. This is life, and it is not fair. It's just true. However, in the middle of struggle and suffering, as we have explored in here for years and talked about, right? In the middle of struggle and suffering is the promise that God is still God. That God prevails in our suffering. Remember, God never promises to prevent our pain, but he promises to prevail in it. See, struggle and suffering is real, and the key to enduring that is faith. It's believing that God is bigger than your situation. It's believing that God hasn't forgotten you. It's believing that God is in absolute and total control. And I will find rest in that even when this world wants to pound on me. Even when things happen in an unfair way. Even when I don't like the way they shake down. Even when the evil people in the world seem to be getting all the credit. Even when my terrible, horrible, awful coworker gets all the credit for all the things that I've done. Even when the deep struggles never seem to end. I'm going to trust and believe that God is at work, that God keeps his promises, and that God is still God. Faith is key to enduring life's struggles and sufferings. It is. And it's not this sort of outlooked optimism that just says, I'm always going to look at the glass half full. No, sometimes the glass is freaking empty. It's just empty. It just is. But faith believes that it's empty for a reason and that God is moving. Faith doesn't pretend that suffering's not there. Faith doesn't even wish suffering away. Faith actually wishes for God in the middle of suffering to just show us who he is so that I can know him more. Faith is key to enduring, so if, enduring struggles and suffering. So if you're struggling or suffering this morning, the key is not wanting to get out of it. The key is having faith in the middle of it and just saying, okay, God, this is where I am. And I believe you're here with me. I believe that. I believe that you're God. And I believe you will walk me through to wherever you're walking me. I trust you. I don't know what you're facing, but my guess is that you're not going to be sawed in half. And everything is better than that. Right? God, everything is better than being sawed in half. And then finally, right, we'll wrap this up. Finally, he brings all this to a close, all of chapter 11 to a close by saying this. These were all commended, right, all these people we're talking about, these people. And he's looking back now at the entire course of chapter 11. All these people were commended, these men and women were commended for their faith, yet none of them received what they had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Faith is necessary even right up to and through our final breath in life. It means that everything that we walk through in this world, faith is key to the very end, to our last dying breath. So think about what he's saying here to this group of Hebrew believers. He's saying all of these people, from Abraham to Moses to Enoch to Noah to Rahab the prostitute, not one of them, although all were commended and blessed by their faith, not one of them received in this life what is promised to them. 
So he's saying to return to Judaism is not the answer because there is something bigger that waits for you. And what he's pointing to is this incredible resurrection that is coming. This reuniting with the God of glory of what Jesus brings to the table and why the new covenant is so much better because the old covenant ends in this place. The new covenant brings about the second coming of Christ and the resurrection to new life. And that we may not experience here on earth the great glory that we are promised when Jesus returns. And so what he's saying is that all those people that have gone before you actually have the great same blessing that you have and that All of us together are going to be united in this incredible, beautiful resurrection. And we will stand before the king. And on that day, we will receive the glory that we never saw in this world. So what he's basically saying to them is that you have got to remain strong in your faith up until and through your last breath. It means that through this entire life, ups and downs, roller coasters, you will not receive the reward that you are guaranteed when Christ comes. No amount of worldly anything will satisfy you or supply for you. It didn't for Abraham, it didn't for Moses, it didn't for Noah, and it won't for you. The promise that they have waiting for them, right, is the same promise that you have waiting for you. And it comes only through Christ. And the great mystery of how God does all that is still news to me. But here is the incredible truth. This world doesn't have it. And so we trust that what is on the other side outweighs everything that we can dream of. No more tears, no more sadness, no more mourning. That we, along with these heroes that trusted the Lord before us, will be united with Christ in a new life that will outweigh everything you've ever walked through with a glory that we were created to be a part of. This glorious, beautiful homecoming. We've talked about it from the beginning of Hebrews on. This promise that waits takes faith through this life. Through this life. The encouragement is we know from the onset that this life won't bring whatever it is that we're hoping for. So we always are looking beyond. I call it longing and looking. We're longing for what's to come, but we're looking for Christ while we're here meaning we're looking for the movement of God while we live in this earth and on this earth, but we're longing for the reality that this world will never bring about fulfillment in our hearts and our souls and will never give us what we desire because that waits for us when we are united with the King of glory. Then we give our lives to Christ. That is the promise that we have, that we can long for that unification at the resurrection, but that we can look for Christ moving now. So that means that the following of Christ is both a short and a long game. It is a short because God wants you to have abundant, real, true life here on earth. But that life will never be what it is when you stand before him in in his presence. It's a short and a long game. Finding the glory of Christ in every breath here on earth and longing for the glory of Christ when we're united with him in heaven. This is where faith takes us. And so what he's saying about these men and women is that though they were faithful here, there was still something so much greater. And that faith will take us up into and through our last breath. 
So here's where all this brings us back to. We've got to be at a place where our faith is moving us towards action, not just saying, my faith means I believe in God. At some point in time, our faith has to move to the practical where we act and live upon it and believe things to be true about who God is, that we believe he can do the impossible, that he can still part the Red Sea and fix a broken marriage and heal what seems impossible. That he can take even the brokenness of our own hearts, the sin kind of riddled lives that we may have. Maybe we're just like Rahab. And yet we can put our hope and our faith in Christ and God will mend and reward and he will heal. And knowing in the middle of all that, that all the things that are happening around us that are eternally and that are moving are because God is good and believing that God does things for eternal significance and it's just him. And I'm going to give him glory and I'm going to give him praise for every single thing that unfolds in my life. Whether it's a new job, the birth of a child, deep friendship, a church that still tries to make it happen. Whatever it is, I'm just going to be grateful and filled with gratitude. Because faith believes that God does things for eternal significance. And so the people that I meet and I've encountered, I believe are there. Moving in my heart, God is doing something amazing and he never quits. It also means that faith means that I understand there's going to be suffering in this life and there's going to be hurt and it's going to be hard. I know that. But it also means that I believe that God is moving in and through that. And that no matter what I'm facing, God will prevail. And so instead of wishing all the suffering away, I'm going to ask God where he is in the middle of it. And I'm going to be grateful that at least I'm not being sawed in half. Right? In other words, there's always something worse. Always. And then finally, I'm going to ask for the strength to take my faith into my final breath and I'm going to look for Christ here in every moment of every day and I'm going to long for Christ and what's to come. This is where faith becomes real. And it's what our author is taking us into. Faith in true and real action. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the moments that we have today just to unpack your word, to gaze back upon redemptive history, and to see where it takes us through the eternal promise of the resurrection. Lord, it's incredible what you've done historically and how you knit all these things together from creation to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob through Moses and the judges and the kings up into Christ through the birth of the church, the promise of your glory, your redemptive story is, it's immeasurable. And the practical takeaway for all of that is that you are fully at work and God, we trust you and faith means believing that you are who you say you are. Believing you still do the impossible, that you love the unlovable, that you are at work in all eternal things. God, that you are the key to surviving and enduring and thriving and suffering and that there is a longing and a looking that waits for us. I'm going to see you alive, alive and working here on earth, Lord, in my life. And I'm going to believe that there is a glory waiting for me that outweighs everything this world promises. And that one day we'll be united with the believers that have gone before us, those that have trusted the Lord, family members that we have that have put their faith in Christ, Lord. There is this beautiful promise that waits. And so I will faithfully endure what this world has to stand in glory with you. 
Lord, as we close our time in worship, I pray that you would press those truths on our heart, that we would be men and women that don't just have faith, but cling and are encouraged to and by the faith of those that have gone before us. Whether they were Rahab, or whether it was Abraham, or whether it was just our dad, or mom, or grandmother, we're encouraged by the faith of those who have walked before. And so, Lord, encourage our hearts this morning as we close our time in worship. Let's stand together and worship the Lord.